This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Hello there. This is Selena Durgan, editor of The Biblical Mind. We're so grateful for you, our listeners, and we're curious about your thoughts and questions regarding the intellectual world of the Bible. We are now inviting listeners to send us questions, and we'll start answering them in upcoming Q&A episodes. You can email your questions to our administrator at cht underscore administrator at tkc.edu, which you can also find in the show notes. We look forward to hearing from you. Kimbrace is an organization that supports newcomers to Canada who are making a refugee claim. It was birthed by my church here in East Vancouver, where I live, and we have about eight suites where refugee families and individuals and couples and parents with their kids can live. They they live for us for th- with, with us for three months while they make their refugee claim. And we support them with housing. We support them with, with kinship, with family. So it's called Kinbrace. And we support them kind of practically and logistically as they walk through often a, a fairly um, worrying and even terrifying process of making a refugee claim and going before the refugee board. On Tuesday evenings at Kinbrace, and you've got to picture this, Kinbrace is two houses side by side, quite near where I live, and, and the two houses share a backyard there's a chicken coop in the backyard and a trampoline where the kids play and a, a small kind of basketball ring with some pavement where the kids can play basketball. And on Tuesday evenings, we have the Kinbrace meal. And my little family, Erin and I and the kids, we go often, and at least not during the COVID period, we don't, but when it's not COVID, we go and we gather with about 30 newcomers there at Kinbrace, people who are, are making their refugee claim, and and we share in beautiful, often cultural cuisine. So, so recently, uh, we have this friend, uh, an Iranian mum and wife, uh, who's just a killer Iranian cook, and she just cooked the most beautiful Iranian meal for this big gathering of 30 or so people, and we just share life, and we share stories, and we talk about the kids, and we share two or three hours together and just kill time and, and become makeshift family together. And I'll tell you what, uh, just as a Christian and as, and as a parent, I love that my kids are able to grow up sharing meals and sharing life with these newcomers to Canada. It shapes them, and it shapes how they see the world. Would you say, are these people who are applying, like they've been funneled through the government from various hotspots around the world that are designated as uh, kind of refugee crises, or are these just people on their own who have made the journey? Yeah, people who've been sponsored by the government or say a church organization, they wouldn't tend to come to Kinbrace because they would land and they'd have, have somewhere to go straight away. But mm. there are people who walk across the border from the United States, or they might fly into our local airport called YVR Vancouver. And then they would make a refugee claim uh, when they crossed the border in one way or another. And then they, um, the reason why Kimbrace was birthed is that actually a lot of people crossed the border and became homeless. They got, mm. they, they got caught up being bumped between homeless shelters. And often that, you know, they were already traumatized, already desperate. And they, 
they experienced another another terrible instability, which made things worse. So about 20 years ago, our church planted Kinbrace precisely to fill that void. And in Vancouver, there's four or five Christian organizations and a Jewish organization um, and, and a non-religiously affiliated organization now that there's this ecosystem to protect these newcomers. So they come to Vancouver. Uh, they need a place to stay and be supported to make their refugee claim, and Kinbrace is one of those places. So it's a real privilege, Drew. Um, yeah, I've personally been there uh, with some of our refugee families there as they they make their case to the Canadian Refugee Board. Mm. I've sometimes just been a, in, in the capacity simply of a friend who sits behind them, supports them, loves them, encourages them, prays with them, and it's an incredible privilege. Um, do you ever feel pressure... Uh, I can imagine some Christians saying, but do you share the gospel with them? Uh, do they do they say the sinner's prayer by the time they've left? Uh, are there any are there any difficulties with uh, being a gospel-centered community, as they say? Uh, and I assume you're working with uh, people who come from all kinds of cultures and religious backgrounds. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it's I, I believe it's a witness um, just welcoming people. Um, I, I believe... We're showing the tenderness of Jesus, and we speak the tenderness of Jesus as we pray with them. Uh, you know, an example would be um, I was going to go to a hearing um, with a particular family, with the parents, and I did go to this hearing, and the day before they were very, very nervous. And my dear friend who was working on staff at Kinbrace at the time was just with the, the mother, the woman, and um, the day before the hearing, and she was just telling them about me and just saying, oh, Mark's a Bible scholar, an Old Testament scholar. And she started to tell her the story uh, of, of Moses and the Exodus event and the rescue of the people of God in the Old mm. Testament from enslavement in Israel, in Egypt. And she even read the story from a children's mm. book, you know. And our friend, who we're still friends with, was deeply touched and, and deeply encouraged. You know, and I should say that it goes the other way too. We're welcomed by our refugee friends, you know, mm. and we are given gifts, incredible gifts by our refugee friends. You know, we're given the gift of their story, of their just of their familial connection, of their confidence, of their trust, and our lives are, are deeply enriched. So it's a two-way street, and we pray that all would come to know Jesus, and yet we we respect and dignify them in this singularly vulnerable time in their lives. And we walk in love and in mutuality as family with them. So let me ask some incredibly naive questions. <laughs> I, I, I think I know the answer to them, but I don't want to presume here. Um, do you believe that Christians, as Christians in any community, have a, a requirement uh, to welcome people from other cultures, refugees of various sorts? Or do you feel like this is... I mean, you could say, well, this is this is a ministry that your church does because they feel called to it very strongly, but not everybody has to welcome the refugee. In fact, some of us might not even like the fact that foreign people are invading our country and bringing their culture and their their ways with them. Yeah. I mean, you've brought up a, a, a question there, a, a but what about question? What about if they change our culture? And and there are many good what about questions that we can and should be asked, and, we, and we, there are good answers to them, but we need to have those discussions. But at a fundamental level, I do believe that God wants humanity and certainly the church to welcome vulnerable people who are seeking a home. Um, certainly, I mean, let's go to the Old Testament first. There is this relentless ethic in the Old Testament to welcome the stranger. It's a relentless ethic. Um, it's most prominent in Deuteronomy, 
where I would think I think it's the most important uh, ethical movement, along with an ethic of of treating one's slave very very well, or even giving them some release. So, uh, for example, in Deuteronomy 10, Israel is commanded to love the stranger, and the stranger there is a refugee person, and that word it's Deuteronomy 10, verse 18 and 19, and Israel is to love the stranger. Why? Because Yahweh, their God, has loved the stranger and does love the stranger. And that word love there is actually a covenant word. It's a word that's taken from ancient Near Eastern covenant treaties, as you know, Drew. And Mm. so it's actually a word that speaks of steadfast covenant loyalty, of covenant commitment. And so Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19, it says that Yahweh loves a stranger, which means Yahweh has commitment, steadfast loyalty to refugees seeking a home. What a remarkable thing, just to say as Mm. an aside. What a beautiful thing that our God, according to Deuteronomy 10, loves a stranger, has a covenant commitment to the stranger. In other words, uh, has a commitment to their flourishing. And then God, and it says that you are to love the stranger to ancient Israel. God's people, you are to love the stranger. In other words, you are to have this covenant commitment to the stranger. You are to enfold the stranger as someone you're committed to for their life and flourishing. And the way that that ethic works its way out in the Old Testament is really a biblical ethic of kinship, which is how we argue in our book that's called Adopting the Stranger as Kindred. Oh, no, it's mm. not. It's called, um, <laughs> that's how the book. We, we never hold people responsible for knowing the names <laughs> of their children or their books on this podcast. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. Refuge Reimagined. And we, yes. <laughs> thank you for not holding me to account. And in Refugee Reimagined, we show this biblical ethic of kinship of adopting the vulnerable stranger who is seeking a mm. home as kin. And very quickly, you come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And isn't this a similar dynamic? That in, in a sense, what we see in the Gospels is Jesus doing what Israel was always supposed to be. Israel, Jesus being what Israel was always supposed to be. And Jesus is always becoming makeshift family with the most vulnerable, the most marginalized in the community. And so you see it in Jesus' fellowship meals, for example. Jesus is eating with all the, inverted commas, wrong people in the eyes of first century culture, but really in eyes of the eyes of the kingdom of God, the right people, and Jesus is becoming family with them. There's this movement in the Gospels of Jesus always bringing the weakest among us into the center of the community. And, and he's charged for that, and he has a, a terrible reputation for that among the Jewish elite. So Luke 15, 1 and 2, this man befriends sinners and eats with them. Mm-hmm. And so there is this movement of adopting the stranger as our kin. And I do believe that that is an ethic for the church, a biblical ethic for the church from the whole biblical story. But the reason why it's an ethic for the church is, of course, it's because it's God's design for humankind that we would embrace one another in our vulnerabilities as family. And the church is to embody that and model that for our society. So how can we do that creatively? And Kinbrace is one example. Yeah. Uh, and there are there are many different situations that require more imaginative thinking to to apply it in various situations, right? So, one of the big hurdles I think for many American Christians, um, where the politics uh, the, the politics of their faith, and I mean that both the internal politics of, of the scriptures and and the politics of the nation intermingle on this front with immigrants, where they say. But they're criminals, you know. They're first and foremost; these people are criminals. They've broken the law in order to be here. So, yes, I can love them, we can care for them, but we need to deal with that criminal aspect first. I wonder how you respond to that. 
Oh, I'm sorry, you. I'm hitting you with all the hard questions. <laughs> oh no, good on you. I mean, I mean, these are the but what about questions, and yeah. and these are very important to ask and very important to speak about in detail. And you're right. Certainly, there is this fear that if we welcome refugees, that they might turn out, for example, to be terrorists. You know, you think um, of mm. what's often said in the popular square. But let's just get to the stats. And you mentioned the United States. The United States resettled more than three million refugees in the last forty years more than mm. 3 million, and there's there's been not one fatal terrorist attack. There has been three plans, um, but, but no fatal terrorist attack. And researchers say that no connection can be found between refugees and terrorism. Mm. And uh, I think that the point that we need to make is if you want to commit a terrorist attack, the last thing that you're going to do is to go on a very, very long life-threatening journey where you put your life and your children's life at profound risk and really risk your life to flee a country precisely because you're probably going to die in the country that you're fleeing. And so there's actually a very low criminality among refugee populations in America and in any other country. Uh, it's actually lower than the general population. Why? Uh, that's because refugees are very, very concerned that they can stay in their new country, mm. in their new home. And for that reason, they tend uh, statistically to be very, very careful to behave uh, and to keep the law. And certainly that's my experience in Vancouver. Um, we've welcomed many, many refugees here in Vancouver. Erin and I, are, we're, we're kin, we're makeshift family with newcomers. We, we share Christmas, we share our birthdays with refugees who, who are friend, our family for the long term. And they're the most wonderful people, you know. <laughs> they're just yeah. wonderful people, you know what I mean? Uh, I wonder uh, if the a couple things come to mind as you're speaking. One is uh, Leon Cass, who talks about how God makes Israel refuge refugees in, in Egypt uh, and brings them out uh, and uses that as a base of their experience by which they're supposed to think about the world. And same, same. I teach freshmen the Old Testament every semester, and they're shocked. I mean, most of them are shocked about how much care there is for the vulnerable and specifically the foreigner because right. they've just never seen it lined up in a row and, and put together. Um, I wonder what you think personally. Why do you think, if we could just say the, the, uh, the biblical authors, the Torah, and maybe even God himself, why do you think they're so unafraid of foreigners when everybody in the ancient world, as far as I know, was very worried about foreigners and foreigners had few rights, if any, and were always seen speciously in most cultures. So why was the Torah just so almost nonchalant and protective and invasively inviting them? Oh, no, that's a brilliant question. I, I mean, and you can strengthen the question or strengthen the sharpness of the question because of the Old Testament's tremendous commitment to religious purity, to religious faithfulness mm. to the people. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Israel's exiled for syncretism, but here is the Torah, uh, Genesis to Deuteronomy, commanding Israel to welcome all these vulnerable non-Israelites who are worshipping all sorts of gods. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so let me go, for example, to Deuteronomy 16, which is what we call a festival calendar. It's a series of feasts um, on an annual calendar, which are kind of timed according to the agricultural seasons. So let's just picture the Feast of Weeks and Booths. That, that through, well, three times a year we pilgrimage from the family farm to Jerusalem, and we feast before the Lord. And, 
and the refugee comes who is with us and the fatherless and the widow. And here we are, we're living together on the family farm. This refugee person is probably working on our farm and the, the fatherless and the widow are with them. And we all pilgrimage together. According to Deuteronomy 16, we, I don't just go to the feast. I go with, with the vulnerable people in our midst and before the Lord we feast. And so here is a picture, if you can just take a hold of this image, of feasting before the Lord, Deuteronomy 16, the refugee, the, land, the landed Israelite, and the fatherless and the widow. Now, an Israelite feast is worship, it's dancing, it's eating the best of the produce and the wine, and it's a huge celebration all before Yahweh, the God of Israel. And I think that, the, that God has this imagination because of the, the, the tenderness and the truth of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the tenderness of God that would call God's people to enfold the, the newcomer, the refugee, just as God enfolded Israel in their slavery, but the big-hearted tenderness that would call us to celebrate before the Lord. And the point is, you know, you might say, well, what if they don't even convert? What if they don't even become a, an Israelite or a Christian? And, and I think the answer to that is, who wouldn't want to join a feast? You know, who wouldn't want to come to a feast like this when there's a God who is so good that he's redeeming and enslaved Israel, God's redeeming refugees and calling Israel to do the same. This is just so good and so joyful as we dance and feast and play music. I'm a jazz musician. We play music mm. before the Lord there at the chosen place. That, that I think there's just confidence in the celebration before mm. this good and tender God. Yeah, I think the key word confidence there, right? Confidence in God. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's really no other. And I'm thinking of the ancient Near East. There really is no other reason to appropriate this view of the foreigner unless you were just absolutely confident that this God had some plan for all of this, and it was ultimately for the good and not for uh, for the bad of Israel. No, I mean, they, um, you were right that this is a quite a unique ethic in the ancient world, and I myself have done a lot of research about that. There are, you know, in terms of ancient Near Eastern texts, there are one or two that speak of including the foreigner, but there's a lot more that speak of excluding the foreigner. But this relentless ethic to enfold the stranger as kin is so beautiful, and it, sp it, it speaks to the tenderness of our God. It shows us the grace of God in Christ there in the Old Testament. And it just shows the, the uniqueness, I think, of the biblical story and just gives us all the more reason to praise our God and give thanks for, mm. for God's tenderness. Uh, so I'm very interested uh, in how all of, of human embodied action shapes and forms our thinking and our concepts and how you know shapes us as, as discerning people in the world. And Deuteronomy famously says you're to be a wise and discerning people. Um, so how do you think, uh, welcoming the foreigner in, I mean, even today in your own experience, how does that shape your thinking about the world? I mean, you said that you want your children to be exposed into it because it has a, it has an impact, but what is that impact specifically that you see? Man, at our church, um, just before COVID, um, I should say at our church, we have this children's theater group and we, they, they rehearse all year and they put on a, a biblical story. It's kind of professional, but kids level, you know, which is, which is mm. fantastic. And and um, it was the book of Ruth two years ago before COVID that they put mm. on. And um, downstairs in the basement of our church, there were different installations, art installations that kind of were in conversation with the book of Ruth. And we know the book of Ruth, right? It's, it's about migration. Ruth's a Moabitess, uh, and uh, she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, an Israelite, and 
there's a movement into Moab and a movement back to Israel. It's about migration, forced migration and survival. And we have a dear friend, Aaron and I, who's a, a, a refugee person who now has permanent residence in Canada uh, from Iran, a single mum and a professional artist, an utterly brilliant professional artist, the kind of person who can paint and it looks like a photograph if she wants mm. to, but she often works in the abstract. She did an art installation in conversation with the Book of Ruth. She's not a Christian person, but we told her the story of the Book of Ruth, and we really uh, try to paint the picture of the heart of, God, the heart of God in this book. So here is her art installation. We gave her a Sunday school room, and we invited her to do what she wanted with it. So she installed an art, an art installation as a wedding feast, and there was a wedding gown and a wedding cake. And there was, there was coins, which is a part of uh, wedding tradition uh, in her culture. And she explained to us that there is a feast for humankind when we embrace one another and welcome one another and protect one another. This familial embrace, which is so close to the scripture. And then she had a data projector projecting an image on a screen, right? And it was a map of the world being projected. But the amazing thing about this map of the world was that uh, the year was projected uh, you know, year, whatever it was, 2019, I think. And then the year would com continually change. It scrolled from 2019 all the way back to Jesus' time, to zero. And it took about, you know, maybe about a minute to do that. And then it took another minute, and it went all the way back to 2019. And then it went all the way back to zero. And so in other words, the year was constantly changing, uh, scrolling from Jesus' time to ours and back. And hmm. at the same time, she had the borders between the nations moving according to the year. Hmm. And on this map of the world, the, the borders of the nations were squiggling around, never stable, constantly moving like wriggling worms. And her point, I think, with that art exhibition is, is, is that the deep contingency of national borders, the deep hmm. contingency even of ethnicity, the, the, the contingency of the place that we think we own and we have a right to and no one else has a right to, the contingency of political realities, which someone like her knows only too well. And, and here in the room, the wedding feast, that, that when we have our eyes open and we realize that much is contingent, but God calls us to embrace the vulnerable person seeking a home as family. Well, in answer to your question, that, that was one way that we have learned from a refugee friend of ours who is makeshift mm. family with us. His friend is a, is a very, very dear friend that I'm mentioning here. She's blessed us more than we've blessed her, as you can imagine. I, I, I do think when you say kinship, I feel like I know what you mean. Mm. I also feel like the obsession with a nuclear family in America and many places has in some ways diluted the idea of kinship. I wonder if you might even say, would you say something as strong as it's difficult to know kinship unless you have some relation to the foreigner in some way, the other? Thank you. I think, um, I think we choose family uh, more than we realize. Um, we do think of family in very static terms in the West very often, not all of us, but many of us do. Those who are kind of... Um, have kind of been in, in North America or Australia or Canada for generations. We think of, of, of family, pretty static terms. There's some fluidity around marriage. We get married and there's some mm. change and then we're static again. 
But the reality is, really, when we think about it, some of our fundamental commitments are um, actually anesthetic as all that. You know, for example, I'm, you know, you or I or others on the, who are listening may be closer to our closest friends than we are to our cousins, for mm. example. And the reality is, when we think about it, there's all sorts of ways that family is moving. You you know, things change in our life. Uh, People die. Uh, People can get divorced. There's IVF, which is an interesting one. Family Mm -hmm. changes. And we all choose which relationships we're going to lean into. You know, we do become family with our dearest friends, sometimes for a lifetime. And we choose to invest in them, sometimes even more than we choose to invest in blood family. And certainly we see that in the life of Jesus. You know, look at Mark chapter, chapter 3. Who was my mother and my sister and my brothers? Mm-hmm. You know, we see Jesus choosing in the most beautiful and wonderful ways, in quite surprising ways. And that's just exactly the point of a biblical ethic of kinship, that when we choose our makeshift family, when we choose what relationships we're going to lean into, that we choose like Jesus did. We mm-hmm. don't just choose people who are just like us, who look like us, who had similar life experiences as us. We can do that. But they were also making sure that we choose as makeshift family people who've had different life experiences to us, that we bring the weakest into the center of our lives as Jesus did. And as we do that, I think we'll find a rich feast. So when we speak about kinship, kinship a biblical ethic of kinship, we're speaking, speaking about this idea of, you know, we are constantly making decisions of which relationships we're going to lean into and to taking our cue from Jesus in that regard and to receive that as a gift. Um, changing topics just a little bit, you've moved very fluidly between Deuteronomy and Jesus and, you know, among other places. Uh, and I run into very many sincere Christians, uh, that love Jesus and have no idea how Deuteronomy or anything in the Torah has anything to do with him outside of that. It predicts his coming. That's, you know, the main feature of, of the old Testament for a lot of people. So how do you walk people through this kind of needing to understand uh, the whole of scriptures in order to understand Jesus' issue? Oh, Drew, that's a wonderful Sorry, question. Big Man, question. <laughs> that's wonderful. I want to bottle that question and take it with me everywhere I go. So let's just, may I just take a minute or two just to narrate yeah. the biblical story? Well, the biblical story starts, let's, it starts with creation. So the first two chapters of the biblical story is Genesis 1 and 2, of course, God creates a world. And and. The lesson of Genesis 1 and 2 is that this world matters to God. It's a, God creates a good world with care and delight. The world matters to God. Now, the biblical story ends with another two chapters that's about the creation. It almost mirrors, the last two chapters almost mirrors the first two chapters. Revelation 21 and 22 are about the renewal of this good creation. And that's very, very important. The, the biblical story is bookended with the creation and the renewal of the creation. Therefore, we know that this world matters to God and that everything that comes between those four chapters, two at the beginning and two at the end, must be about the world, at least in part, a- about God's loving this creation to life. Well, let's just say as well, the gospel comes in the middle of that story. The gospel comes smack bang in the middle of the story, the gospel about our Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that the story begins and ends with the creation indicates to us that Jesus' life and death and resurrection must have something to do not only with kind of the saving of sinners, but that deeply embedded within a a renewing of the creation itself, that the gospel comes in the middle of this story that's about the world and humanity in it. So, 
Genesis 3 now, back to the beginning, we, we have the fall, as people know, and sin's curse distorts the good's creation. In light of human sin, in light of human transgression and rebellion against God, there's not one part of the good creation that isn't somehow distorted by human sin. And so after Genesis 3, God sets out on a long road of redemption, of redeeming God's good purposes for humanity and God's good purposes for the creation. In light of the fall, human sin, the rest of the biblical story is this story of redeeming the creation and humanity within it. And you know that in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, God calls a people, that's ancient Israel, and God calls a people, redeems them from Egypt, takes them to Sinai, Exodus 20 now, and gives them the law. And the law given at Sinai is beautiful. The law is just after the Exodus event, the Exodus from slavery in Egypt, and the law is shaping God's ancient people Israel to be beautiful, to be a community that brings the weakest to the center to be a community where every person can flourish, even as God is deeply present in fellowship among them. In other words, to be a community where there are no pharaohs who make life miserable for people, Mm. who accumulate all the resources, who enslave, there's to be no pharaohs, but every person is dignified by virtue of God's presence and God's word, the Torah, the law. We know that, well, ancient Israel didn't do a great job in living into this beautiful vision, and so the, the Old Testament does finish with, uh, with a bit of a downturn. And when Jesus comes in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Gospels speak, tell a story of Jesus, Jesus is, as a first century Israelite and as a son of God, being what Israel was always called to be and doing what Israel was always called to do, but establishing this in power by his life, death, and resurrection as a son of God. And so that Jesus, as the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed king of Israel, comes, he doesn't just fulfill it in power in sort of an unearthly spiritual sense, but he gathers a people, gathers an eschatological remnant. Some New Testament scholars have said that Jesus is doing little more than gathering an eschatological remnant, gathering a people in the last times to be that faithful Israel. Hmm. And so the gospel that comes in the middle of the story is saying something like this, now at last, now at last in our Lord Jesus Christ, God is establishing his sovereign saving rule on earth, is is forgiving sins and establishing God's reign for the sake, for the life of the world and for the life of humanity. And of course, in Jesus' resurrection, Jesus rises as the beginnings of this, this whole world renewed, as the first fruits of this world renewed. So in answer then, how does Deuteronomy fit into it? How does Deuteronomy fit into the Jesus story? Well, Deuteronomy is shaping ancient Israel as a contrastive community. It was to be the real deal, is to be an outpost of the kingdom of God in a very ancient time. And we come to Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and God is doing through Jesus, the Son of God, in power what God was always, well, seeking to do through the Torah. Hmm. I really, I've never heard it put that way specifically, and I love that contrastive community idea that we were meant to be contrastive in a, in a productive way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so you are uh, an immigrant to Canada or Canada, as I like to call it for my Canadian friends, <laughs> just um, to frustrate them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, you're an Australian immigrant. Um, and I, when I have foreign scholars on here, non-American scholars on here, I like to ask them, uh, what, 
how do you view the American church? And this, again, it's for our American audience to kind of help them understand how the international church views them. Uh, and, you know, and that could be, you know, the negatives or the positives, things that you wish the international church had that the American church excels in or things that you think that we are, we have blind spots um, or practices that you might find problematic. Sure. I mean, I'm really interested in the African-American church. Um, I'm a jazz musician by oh, trade, yeah. you know, as my... A very good one. Yeah, I've heard I've heard Thanks, lots man. of your music. It's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. I was a jazz pianist before I became a pastor and a biblical scholar and used to play in Sydney, Australia. And so I just spent thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours listening and learning from um, black American music. And um, yeah, I think that there's some really uh, exciting things. Going on in the black church, I think some of the community building, um, some of the solidarity with vulnerable people. And I've just noticed too, uh, I have Hispanic uh, leader friends uh, in the US who have just been, uh, along with with black leaders, just remarkably good at at bringing um, neighborhood dialogues uh, going on, getting collaborative work done in neighborhoods. I've been so impressed um, during the BLM period over COVID, mm. some of my black and Hispanic pastor friends who have been willing to have dialogue um, with white evangelical Christians who've been very suspicious about um, about BLM and been willing to have dialogues on racism. Um, sometimes been able to um, just hear and be patient with um, with their white sisters and brothers as we very, very slowly learn. I certainly have had, yeah, my black friends have often been very patient with me. I've noticed, put up with my slowness to learn, and I've been really grateful for that. Mm. Um, yeah, I've just noticed in... Just some, just some really beautiful tenderness and solidarity and patience uh, among Black and, and Hispanic leaders. I think that Drew, some of the most exciting stuff is going on in the small churches, the small, mm. really neighbourhood-based parishes that are just seeking humbly to receive the healing of Christ and to extend that within a particular neighbourhood. Um, I don't get so excited about the bigger churches. Sometimes I think that it can be harder to be humble. It can be harder to be light on light on our feet. It can be humble to be really responsive to a neighbourhood in a bigger church. But there's often sometimes a real humility, um, an intercultural kind of flavor to some of the smaller churches, some of the very compassionate pastors that are able to just kind of nourish makeshift family in a particular neighborhood that's, that's really beautiful. Um, mm. But yeah, in answer to the kind of the edge of your question, I think that um, I'm deeply troubled by the nationalism in white American evangelicalism. Um, honestly, when 80% of white evangelicals inv- uh, elected Donald Trump, some some people in Vancouver left my church um, because they were just so troubled and were deeply, deeply uh, shaken in their faith by white evangelicals electing Donald Trump because pre-election he demonstrated his sexism and xenophobia. Um, I think that there's something that, um, yeah, is uh, it, it, it's contrary to the biblical story as, as we've narrated it today, as I understand it, and uh, it's not a biblical Christianity in my opinion. There's yeah, some deep soul searching and repentance. Uh, I think that that is urgently needed by um, yeah some sectors of the white American church, unfortunately. Hmm. Okay, now a question just for me. Uh, well, I have a fellow colleague uh, on the line. This is a real question that I struggle with. Do you trust biblical scholars who don't actually go out and connect with the refugees, who don't actually? practice some of what we consider maybe some of the basic practices of Torah. Um, the ones who kind of, they go to church, they do their duty, but they're not actually in, you know, scholarship is what they consider their ministry as it were. 
Um, You're so good. I'm just hit, hitting you with the hardest questions oh, I can Drew, think yeah, of at this I mean, point. I love my sisters and brothers <laughs> who are biblical scholars, man. Um, I am just so aware that we read the Bible according to our own life experience, and we read our experience into it, and I emphatically do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have got to be, we, we white scholars, we white male scholars, we have got to be reading minority voices, don't we? Mm-hmm. These scholars from minority cultures, um, female scholars who are white or BIPOC, because um, we, we are attentive to biblical themes as they intersect with our lives. You know, it was Latino scholars back in the 1960s and 70s who brought our attention to a hermeneutic, not only of reading scripture, but that hand in hand with the hermeneutics of praxis, that mm-hmm. we do it and we read and we do it and we read and we can read better while we do it. Um, and so we have to learn from one another as a body of Christ in our differences. And it's just so telling, isn't it, that that our African-American friends who are writing or our Asian friends who are writing, they're, they're noticing different themes, you know. I read my Asian friends, and they're writing about kinship and patronage. I don't mm-hmm. write. I don't write about patronage. You know, <laughs> honor and shame cultures. Yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah. that, that's their life experience. And similarly, the Latinos are, are just so sensitive to deep hierarchical and economic inequalities because that's what they experience on the global stage. And so we just have. Don't we have to be the body of Christ? You know, as biblical scholars, we have to make sure that we're reading and citing from a diversity of voices, not just people who look like me. And then, as you say, we have to follow Jesus into the mud and the mess. If we're going to read the Bible, uh, we have to follow Jesus into the mud and mess. Because the, Why? Because the Bible was always written from within the mud and the mess. I can't think of a time, from my knowledge of the writing of the Hebrew Scriptures, where the biblical writers were in a context where they were doing really well. You know, I mean, I mean, the gospel writers, you know, and, the, and Paul, the New Testament writers, it was a persecuted church. Some of them were martyred. It was always not only a minority, but uh, they were writing for fear of their life. Those Roman house churches, uh, so many of them were martyred. So much of the literature, biblical and extra biblical, that we have from the early Christian centuries are written by martyrs. And the Old Testament time, you know, we read about the kings. Of Israel, and we tend to th- think if we read the Old Testament, we think of it by written from the Tower of Power. No way. Ancient Israel was a henpecked little community, which which was in a very painful place of the great empires, often the nexus, the militarized nexus between the great empires. It was hard work uh, being an Israelite scribe, a- and they might have written their letter, uh, you know, in exile. They may have written their letter with with an Assyrian army parked outside. The, the prophetic uh, works. Or, and so we have to understand that the Bible's written from the underbelly of society. And if we're going to read it aright, then we've got to read it um, somehow in solidarity with the margins. You know, it doesn't work uh, to sit in the luxury of a Western seminary and from the insulation of a well-paid job and to read and teach the Bible. You've got to get your hands dirty. You've got to follow Jesus into the muck and mess, I believe. And read the Bible from there in solidarity with those who are on the margins. Well, Dr. Mark Glanville, thank you so much for your wisdom and your work. Thanks, Brother Drew. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. 
Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 